0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon+. Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Dr. Peter Lilback, entitled God and General Washington, from the conference series, American War for Independence. The series also features talks by pastors Douglas Wilson and Steve Wilkins. Listen to the full series now on Canon+. Plus. My topic today, George Washington on the faith of a Christian, or to be more trendy, God in general Washington, is an attempt to pick up a theme that I think has been lost, denied, distorted for many, many years. Uh, People would say, well, you're part of a, a new revisionism, and I'll accept that title. I'm just trying to revise things back to the truth. And if that's what revisionism means, then I'm glad to be a revisionist. I'm saying that the way people describe Washington's faith today, and as they did in the past, is almost always inaccurate. One of the truths that I have to say with real shock, after 200 years plus since Washington uh, passed away, uh, we are still awaiting someone to do serious scholarship on the issue of what did he really believe. Now, there have been books that have been written both from a very Christian viewpoint and a very secular viewpoint, but they're almost all based upon secondary information. The work of literally doing word-by-word analysis of the thousands of letters that fill some 37 volumes plus has yet to be done. And I can say I'm part way into that project, and I think I've done enough of it now, especially with the help of the wonderful computer research engine that's now available to every American. And so maybe the most important thing I'll tell you today, if you have the handout that I did prepare for this, you'll see that at the bottom it says there's a website called etext.lib.virginia.edu slash Washington slash Fitzpatrick. Now, if you plug that in, since you all know how to do high-tech stuff, you'll discover that you can do a word search on all of Washington's writings in the 1930s version of his collected writings. Those are not complete, but they're pretty close. And that means that you can check me out on any of this. One of the things people are saying, you're a historical revisionist, you're making this stuff up. Now, some of these things you can't find there because they're part of my broader research. But a number of things that I'm going to talk about, you can go back, just like Paul did, uh, had to do with the Bereans. I want to say, is that in the Torah? Show me it's in the law. Where do you find it? You don't take my word for it. You go back and look at it. And when the day comes in God's providence that my uh, study that I'm doing with a fellow by the name of Jerry Newcomb, who works with Dr. Kennedy and Coral Ridge Ministries, comes out, all of the research notes will be there available for you to check on me. I'm not going to hide anything. I want to expose myself fully to the press, to the scholars that are out there, because I think when you're on the side of real, authentic, primary source research, good scholarship, you want people to take you on. Say, prove me wrong. I don't know what else I can say than what I'm going to tell you. So my point here today is to say that the research, sadly, largely has not been done by anybody. I'm trying to do something to correct that. And so as I start then with the views of Washington's Christianity, let's recognize that until about the time of the bicentennial of Washington's birth, which is about 1930, 32 Most people believed instinctively that Washington was a Christian. Anyone who had written on the topic said that. And what is sad is that basically what they did to prove the case, they used all the great anecdotes that everybody knew. But the problem with history is that what you know is an anecdote from one generation, and the second generation becomes uh, tradition. And the third generation, it becomes a legend. And the fourth generation, it becomes a myth. And therefore, oral history no longer has any value. And so all of the early scholarship on Washington's faith has been simply dismissed because we can say, well, it doesn't test the pass the test of the criterion of legal scholarship or the rigid primary source documentation. And so all of those stories can be debunked. And then with a new grid of interpretation, which has been especially in vogue since the 1960s. We can say that we don't find anything that reflects a real viable Christian witness in Washington's life. Now, today, I want you to know I started in this investigation many years ago wanting to find Washington to be a Christian. But I determined that if he wasn't one, I would not present him as one. I I started off also looking at other founding fathers, including Thomas Jefferson. I wanted Thomas Jefferson to be a Christian. But you know what I have to tell you, that he was a Unitarian. If you use a Trinitarian definition of a Christian, he does not fit the standard. And he does use Christian speak sometimes. But when you find him at his most authentic description of himself, in fact, there's one particular story in the life of Jefferson that's in his collected writings, where he is actually asked by someone, would you be a sponsor for my child in baptism, a godfather? Would you stand there for my child? And he writes back and says, I cannot do this in good conscience because I'm a Unitarian. And to be a sponsor of a baptism means that I have to affirm the Trinity in an Anglican church. And I can't do that. Now, Don't you appreciate Jefferson's honesty? What you need to realize is that one of his contemporaries by the name of George Washington was a sponsor for children in baptism on at least nine occasions we can find in his writing. And he understood exactly what it meant to do that. He was saying that I'm affirming the historic Christian orthodoxy of the Trinity and saying I will work with this family and this child to help them to know these truths. And one of the things that Washington said of himself throughout his life, my honor is very important to me. He said, I'm a man of truth. In fact, he wrote to his commanding officer as a young man, A military person in the Virginia Army, wasn't really an army, a militia fighting the Indians, he says, I'm a young man in whom there is no guile. He said, I tell you what I believe to be true. Washington, whatever we say about his faith or non-faith, acted consistently as he saw it with what was his conscience. And that means that his actions are important. And as we begin to look at some of his ideas, the evidence for his faith, I think it's important to realize that he had a motto understood by his own granddaughter, uh, Nellie Custis, uh, who said that he used to teach Nellie Custis Park, Washington. I've forgotten how you put all their names. She was adopted into his family. But basically, her she said his motto was God and country, words and not deeds. I found both of those phrases in Washington's letters. He said, my God, my country, and myself. And he says that I am concerned to emphasize deeds, not words. So as we enter into the discussion of Washington, we need to realize this is a man who is not a theologian. He was a farmer, and he was a military man, and he was involved in politics. He did not write theological treatises. That means the evidence that we are going to find in his writing are always going to be tangential and indirect. He's not going to say, let me tell you what I believe about the deity of Christ. He did not try to do something like that. So we have to do it as a indirect study of his life, of his words, and of his uh, actions that come together to give us a perspective. Now, before we plunge into some of the evidence, let me add one third thing. If the early view of Washington's Christianity was that he was a Christian, there are all these anecdotes. And then more recently, there's been a denial of that. He was, in fact, a deist. A more recent variation on that is, well, maybe there's some evidence that he was a Christian, but he was not very devout. It was only political-type Christianity. Well, among all of those ideas, we attempt to place this discussion today, and let me narrow the discussion as simply as I can by putting forward what I think is an incontestable definition of what a deist is, because everybody who has written on this topic, who denies Washington's Christian, including great Christian people and scholars, will say he was a deist. Well, what was a deist? We can break the word deist into two categories, what I would call A historic uh, 18th century deist, and that is the time of Washington in the 1700s. Or then what we would call a hard deist, what a deist became in the next century, in the 19th century. The first deist definition is one who says there is no revelation from God. God does not unveil himself to people. There is a God, there's a first cause, there's a creator, but there is no revelation. So if we're going to demonstrate that someone was a deist in the milieu of our founding father's era, we must demonstrate that they deny revelation. That's the first one. The second part is that we must show that they reject the deity of Christ. A deist was by definition an anti-Trinitarian. Two elements of a historic, indisputable definition of the milieu of the founding fathers of a deist is that there is no revelation And there is no deity for Christ. Now, as you go to the next century, you can add a further component, and that is a rejection in toto of the idea of providence, that God is active in history. Okay, You know that idea as the watchmaker who winds up the clock, and then he lets it unwind and pays no attention to it. Or the absentee landlord theory of the creator. He creates everything and then he leaves it to go about its business. Well, I want to say that there is probably only one, at best two deists in that sense in our founding father's era. You can, even Jefferson, who I've already admitted is a Unitarian, will believe strongly in the fact that God is somehow active in the affairs of human history. One of the little pamphlets that I've sent along as a free gift for you, if you'd like to take it, is called uh, Freedom's Holy Light with a Firm Reliance on Divine Providence. I saw them stacked up in the back. Take one if you want. And they're just an attempt to show how the idea of providence keeps showing up again and again all throughout American history. We are not hard deists if our nation was intended to be a deist nation. That's another debate. It's clear that they believe that God was active in history. So with that kind of an introduction then of saying that we really do still need to do the research, surprisingly, on this topic, and secondly, uh, there is this definition of a deist that we must keep in mind and hold all of our opponents to Washington's claim to be within the Christian heritage to and say it is not enough to say that Washington sinned. It's not enough to say that Washington wasn't a perfect churchman. It's not enough to say that Washington wasn't the best Christian. Those don't define a deist. They define a kind of a Christian. And what we must require of those that want to take Washington out of the worldview of Christianity is to show that he denied revelation and that he denied the deity of Christ. And I want to say to you, there's not one shred of evidence that can show either one of those, not one in fact as we begin to look at the evidence for washington's faith i think we need to realize that he does describe himself as a christian and he clearly criticizes those who denied god's providence or sought to separate the role of religion in supporting constitutional government so that's a mouthful but let me give you a few examples in a private letter that he writes to another general he says to general thomas nelson as we look at the fact that now the British are back in Long Island, where they nearly destroyed the American troops the first time, but now they have retreated there to be safe from our forces. You must be worse than an, uh, an infidel and more than bad to not believe that God's providence has been at work on our behalf. Now, that wasn't a political statement. That was a private letter of affirmation. And you notice what he says in those words. He literally is quoting the King James translation of the Bible. You've heard the phrase worse than an infidel. But now it's interesting. An infidel in that day was to be identified in almost everybody's mind with a deist. It was a synonym for a deist. An infidel is one who didn't believe the Bible. It's one who did not believe in the deity of Christ. He was rejecting historic Christianity. And therefore, when he says that this one is worse than an infidel and more than bad who cannot see God's providence, he's simultaneously quoting the Bible, rejecting deism, and and recognizing that one must affirm that God has been blessing the American cause in some way. Now, that statement stands unchanged. I challenge anyone who takes a deist view of Washington to see if ever once he changes his mind having said that, and you will not find it. He will say, for example, the propitious smiles of heaven cannot be expected on any nation that rejects the eternal laws that have been ordained by heaven. Now, that's what he says in his first inaugural address, in his first beginnings of leadership of the new nation. He says that heaven has ordained something for earth. They are rules. They are eternal. We could call them the Ten Commandments. God has revealed the law to his people. As he retires from his office, he says the kind of constitutional government that we have can never last unless it's supported by religion and morality. He said you cannot call yourself a patriot if you're seeking to undermine these things. Well, the idea is that Washington wants to see religion and government together with a kind of revelatory view Well, we could go on in several ways along these lines, but let's move into some of the evidence that probably has never been heard before in a public address, because I think there are new research that I've uncovered. Let's go on to the second thing. All of you have heard of the famous Parson Weems. He is the egregious example for modern scholars of the worst kind of scholarship. He's the person that gave us the story of, I cannot tell a lie, Chop down the cherry tree. The Breaking of the Cult, uh, you know, when he says, I can't tell a lie, Mom, I killed the cult riding it too hard. All the stories that give us the character of Washington's nature, you know, the first book on Washington's life. Everybody says Parson Weems is a writer of a hagiography, not a historiography of Washington. And it's what Christians have been doing ever since, quoting stories that have no basis. And, And so historians have fun tearing Parson Weems apart. But let's stop for a moment and say, who in the world was Parson Weems? Did you know he was an ordained Anglican clergyman who happened to have preached in the church where Washington worshiped, called Pohick Church, still in Virginia? Now, those things are fascinating, but that's not what I want you to know. Did you know that Parson Weems actually did business with Washington? There are letters that are extant that show that uh, Weems was writing about some real estate that Washington was selling on behalf of a friend. But it doesn't stop there. What's most interesting is that Parson Weems was a book publisher. I don't think his organization was called Canon Press. I can't remember what it was called, but it might have been the Anglican Publication Society of Virginia or something like that. And he was printing books. He was a bookseller. And he happened to put together a trilogy of works uh, that he uh, published under the title The Immortal Mentor. This is a rare book. I've been able to buy one. It's still in print. I have a hard copy. It was so fun when I tracked it down, bought it, and I began to read it. You know why? Because everything in that book is trying to talk about living your life under the mentorship of a Christian faith, about how you eat, about how you invest, and how you pursue a spiritual life and find true happiness. It's especially in the true happiness section that we find a classical writing of the Puritans uh, of the past. uh, Dr. Scott, who was in the Puritan tradition, who wrote an extensive treatise that was put there. Now, why is that important? That book was sent to George Washington by Parson Weems. And George Washington wrote back a letter. This letter says, I have read your book with great excitement. There's never been a finer book written on this topic. And I hope it is able to be widely read all across our region. Now, no deist could have said that about that book because it's historic Christianity. It is thoroughly Christian. And one of the things I hope to do someday is just do a a selection of quotes from that book with that letter, that correspondence and say, does this look like a deist to you? Washington was willing to identify himself with historic Christianity. Well, with that little example, then, if we were to think that Washington was, in fact, in the Christian tradition, we would think that perhaps he would have a high view of the Bible, that he might actually have been biblically literate, that he might actually have used the Bible. Well, here are a few things I want you to know. George Washington, and training his children, made sure that they had a Bible with their names printed in gold letters on them. Have any of you ever done that? That's kind of like a traditional Christian thing. When he had his adopted son being educated, do you know what he trained him in? A classical education. He had a Greek New Testament. He had Latin writers. And they were reading the great books of Christian faith, including Christian apologetics. That was the way he had his son raised. And then when he was giving one of his great addresses, he was talking about how great America was in its experience with all of its blessings. But he says, above all the things that have blessed America, the greatest is revelation. Now, wait a second. He can't say that. He's a deist, right? The most important blessing America has has been blessed with revelation that God has allowed the Word of God to be here. He's talked about the ordained rules of heaven. He will actually call the Bible the Word of God. And one of my favorite phrases, actually, I'm going to paraphrase it now, is a letter that, an extensive treatise that Washington wrote. It went on to about 60 pages. He decided not to send it. He was going to send it to the first Congress, having been elected as president. And again, you can find this. Plug in the phrase, Word of God, and in the uh, search engine, and you'll find it. And in this uh, particular document, he says, the blessed religion revealed in the word of God will remain an eternal monument on the depravity of man. Now, wait a second. I think I might find that in John Calvin or something. That's a lot of Calvinistic language, isn't it? And he says, when you look at this Religion revealed in the word of God. You'll see how men in their depravity can take the best blessings of God and turn them into curses. What's he talking about? He's talking how the religion of Israel had been turned around to destroy the Messiah. And he said, this is an eternal testimony that tells us what men will do with the constitution that we have. Because no wall of words No mound of parchment can preserve the constitutional liberties we have if human beings will choose to sinfully attack them. Now, that's a paraphrase, but a near quote of an extensive section of Washington. In those words, he clearly says that the religion of Christianity is revealed, that it is revealed in the word of God and that men deal with it in their depravity. That is historic Christian language. He did not send the letter, but it is there preserved in his own handwriting. There are reasons why he chose not to send it, which we cannot pursue at this point. But within his writings, there are many other phrases that come right from the Bible. I wish I had time to give them all to you, but one of my favorites is a personal letter that he sent to the Marquis de Lafayette. I remember Lafayette is one of the great French men who come here. He was probably worth a billion dollars or so, a rich man, part of the royal family, a marquis. He came to fight for the American cause. He became the adopted son of Washington. Washington was about 50. Lafayette was about 25 when they met. And he loved this young man as though he were his own. When Lafayette left to go back and became part of all the upheaval that was in the French nobility and the French Revolution, which, of course, Washington was not sympathetic to because of its radical denial of historic order and values. There's an interesting letter that he writes to Lafayette, which I will not quote here but i will if you want to pursue it i'll be glad to make the references available where he will in a paragraph write to him and he will bring nine bible verses together in one paragraph he doesn't use chapter and verse he just quotes them now i tried to look at that passage and find the references i tracked them all down i recognized them as as biblical phrases and i asked myself could i write a paragraph like this where i just simply let my brain go into biblical speak and I said, I don't know that I could do that. He was writing a letter and he knew the Bible well enough that he simply took biblical phrases and he strung them together in perfect coherent sense, indicating how deeply the Bible had been part of his mind. This is something that I don't think you would expect from a typical deist, a man who has so suffused his mind in the Bible that he would write in biblical language. But this is not the only example of this. There are many other letters that I've come across where he does the same. Uh, Some 300 biblical allusions, which I've cataloged, but I will not present here. One of the other examples I would like to present to you as we go along is Washington's affirmation of various sermons that he declared he had read that were deeply Christian, evangelical, and orthodox. Again, in his writings, there are sermons that are sent to him. Now, you need to realize that when you come to a busy man and you send him something, it doesn't mean he's going to read it. He might keep it on a shelf. He might have it there, but he may never use it. But in about seven or eight instances, Washington says, I received the sermon that you've sent me, I've read it, and I find that it's, Orthodox. The doctrine is sound. I approve of it. I hope others will read it. I send compliments to you for, and on and on he goes. Now, the reason I share that with you is that there are a couple or three that are striking in character. One of them is by a man named Yuzel Ogden. Usel Ogden almost became one of the first bishops in America. He was an Anglican. And then later in fighting with the church, he becomes a Presbyterian. So he might be an interesting person for this particular group that has high sympathies for high worship and is Presbyterian in character. usual Ogden. One of the, the sermons he sends is how a man might know the gospel. And it's just filled with an evangelical statement of the gospel. Washington reads it and he says, this is, I approve of what you've written. Basically saying, I approve of evangelical doctrine. A similar example of this is a, a young tutor that his son had had, a man named Zachariah Lewis, whose father was a congregational minister up in New England. He writes t- two sermons that are published. Zachariah Lewis sends his father's sermons. One of them is a defense of the deity of Christ. If you read it, it sounds almost exactly like the liar, lord, lunatic trilogy of C.S. Lewis. It's the same kind of apologetic writing. When this is read by Washington, he says, I approve of the soundness of the doctrine. Again, no deist could ever have said such a thing. Washington, we know from other sources, regularly read a chapter from the Bible or sermons to his family on the Sabbath day. That is preserved both by his grandson and by the family uh, assistant that served them as he was president. And I have been in the Boston Athenaeum, uh, where Washington's library has been preserved. And there are probably about 15 volumes of collected pamphlets that were made in his lifetime. And several of those are just collected sermons that he had taken and bound together for his family's use Now, no deist would have done that. You know what they would have done with those? They'd have thrown them in the trash can. These are evangelical, biblical sermons for family worship. As we continue to build the case, it's interesting that as you go along, that Washington's correspondence also included uh, letters that went between some very high-ranking nobility. Probably the most important one for our purpose is a a lady by the name of Lady Huntington. Lady Huntington... Basically owned the state of Georgia. That's a pretty wealthy person, wouldn't you say? She, she owned the state of Georgia at one point. It was her proprietary land. Lady Huntington was the one that had paid for many of the Whitfieldian missionaries to go out. She was a supporter of Whitfield's ministry. She was close to the Methodist movement. And Lady Huntington wrote a letter to George Washington and said, you are a new Abraham. God has raised you up to disciple the nations. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the idea. And she said, as a leader that God has so blessed, I know that I can count on you to help me with my vision to evangelize the Indians in America's frontier. Now, you normally wouldn't write to a deist to ask them to help evangelize people and to Christianize Indians. Washington received that letter, and he said, I will do all that I can to help you in your purpose. And what's intriguing is in the most recent collection of Washington's letters, it's been redone by the University of Virginia. Do you know that that letter by Lady Huntington, for some reason, just didn't make it into the text for anybody to read? I've wondered, why did they not let that letter? It has been literally suppressed. Suppressed by the scholars that have given us the most recent version of the letters to Washington and Washington's response back. Because when you put them together, two plus two don't equal deism. They equal evangelical Anglican mission interest. And it's suppressed. I hope I can someday ask the editor, why did you choose not to let people read that letter? I hope it was just a mistake. But I'm a little skeptical. They're so careful in getting everything. They tell you about it, but it's not there. Now, also what's interesting, as you go from there, is the next item, uh, letter F, George Washington's correspondence with missionaries to the Indians and his approval of their mission statements that are simply theological extracts from the Bible. Now, what's intriguing about this is that there was a man from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, a man named Reverend Etwine. The reason that we know this is significant is that Washington's papers, while he was at Valley Forge, were kept at the mission in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Many of the men who were wounded from the Battle of Brandywine went to Bethlehem. This is the place where uh, Ephrata is, the Cloisters, and it's a traditional Christian place to this day in Pennsylvania. And Reverend Etwine had opportunity to have encounters in interaction with George Washington as a general. Reverend Etwine says, I send you an extraction of the principles by which we use to share the gospel with the Indians, I have found that that also has been suppressed in the collected papers of Washington. It's referred to, but they don't let you read it. I've gone back and found the manuscript. It's six pages, and you know what it is? The extract of how the uh, brethren do mission work with the Indians? They're just Bible verses. It's just a wonderful biblical theology of sharing the gospel. And Washington wrote a letter back, and he said, The deep desire that we have to see the Indians converted has a fair hope that it will be accomplished through the methods which you are using. I applaud you in your efforts. Washington was one who said, I want to help see the Indians brought to a Christian faith. Well, with these sorts of correspondences, biblical knowledge, involvement with Christian things that show that he has an interest in biblical revelation, a recognition in some way of the deity of Christ, which we've not fully affirmed and proved yet, but at least hinted at, we begin to look at some of the historic Reformed orthodoxy in the language that he used. For example, I've noted that Washington was remarkably Calvinistic at points in some of his theological vocabulary. I'm not saying he was a Calvinist. I'm not going to conclude that. I am saying that his Christian Thinking was influenced by ideas that emanate from the Reformed tradition. One of the classic examples is the word of the Bible that has been the thousand year reign of Christ called the millennium. Now, you won't find that in Washington's writing if you spell it correctly. You have to misspell it. Washington is a bad speller. On three occasions, he will use the word millennium or millennial with one N. If you want to find it, that's how you find it. So spell it wrong and it'll show up. Okay. And basically what he says are things like this. It looks as though the promised millennium that we have so longed for is farther off than we had wished. Now, that view of the millennium is not a premillennial or amillennial view. It's a postmillennial view. And, of course, that's consistent with the New England kind of Christianity that had leavened much of America. Many of Washington's closest friends were the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians that settled in Alexandria, where he ended up worshiping mo- much of the rest of his life as an older man. His closest friend, his personal physician, Dr. Crake, was a I- Scotch-Irish Presbyterian. And so they talked about millennium-type stuff. And Washington apparently offhandedly affirms it on three occasions that he was longing for the millennium. You know, deists don't believe in a millennium because that's an idea that comes from the revelation in the Bible, a hope for the new age that God will bring upon the earth. He calls the Bible Holy Writ. He writes to Governor Morris, one of the great uh, leaders in the uh, con- uh, Constitutional Convention, and he will say that this argument is as sure as a proof from holy writ. And that's not said in jest. It's said as a matter of fact. He said, if you believe something is true, prove it by the Bible, and that settles it. But you know what? No deist believes in that sort of thing. They don't believe the Bible is true. He says it's as sure as an argument established by holy writ. And he's writing not for public consumption. He's writing to a fellow political leader who may not have actually shared that high of a view of the Bible. He speaks of human depravity. In fact, I've mentioned that in his letter to Congress where he talks about uh, the eternal monument of human depravity being what is found in our holy religion, revealed in the word of God. Oh, a paraphrase that Washington has for depravity is the word rascality. Isn't that a good one? That's a word that Washington says, I'm becoming totally convinced of the rascality of the human nature. You cannot expect anyone to do anything unless you bind them in solemn covenant, or lest they will not keep their word. Okay, he actually uses the phrase solemn covenant. That's kind of reminds of some of the tradition of an earlier age of history. He doesn't use depravity there. He creates a new word, rascality. That's called Washingtonian depravity speak. Okay. He uses the word providence, which is a dear word to reform people. In fact, I, I'll remind you that I was hoping to be here yesterday, and I had to remember that there's a reason why the plane had a malfunction on the ground and not in the air yesterday. That kept me four hours late. That got me to Salt Lake City, and I had to wait for all day long because apparently Lewiston is not a frequently fly-to city from Salt Lake. <laughs> I was surprised when I got here that they had two flights in a day. But I had to wait till, and I said, Lord, you're sovereign. Thank you for your providence. I'm glad the hydraulic system failed on the ground and not in the air. Lord, thank you that I had about uh, 10 extra hours to sit down and work on my Valley Forge lecture, which is going to be the weak link in my trilogy. I'm going to do a much better job. You knew I needed to do a better job. You know, that's, reformed people can do that because we know God cares about the hairs on our head. He not only sees the sparrows that fall to the ground, but the airplanes that fall to the ground, doesn't he? And so as a result of that, I said, you know, providence, that's a good word. What I want you to realize is that over 300 times in private, public, and official correspondence and writings, Washington will refer to providence. And it includes such things as bullets, that do not go any farther than his coat or his hat or his horse when he's in battle. It goes to the tobacco crop. It goes to the rains. It goes to victory in battle and defeat in battle. It goes to the storms on the seas. Washington saw all of life under the sovereign providence of God. You don't believe me? You go, you find that website, that search engine, put in the word providence. And if you can read all the references that come up in a day, you're an impressive scholar. There are a lot. That's a reformed idea. When it comes to the words deity, the names for God. Now, one of the arguments that a man by the name of Paul Bowler uses, Paul Bowler has written probably the the most quoted book on Washington's deism, is that Washington chooses to not use the names for God that orthodoxy uses. He would rather use the terms of the deist. So I took him up on his claim. He wrote in the 1960s, now with the help of computer searches and all that sort of things, you can take Thomas Paine, the hardest deist that America had. One of the great patriots, to be sure. Common sense was read by everybody. Made him famous. The age of reason was so terrifying to Americans that people would not even let him be buried in their cemetery because it was such an assault against biblical Christianity. I went to the Age of Reason. I did a search on it, as computerized, and tried to find out how many names for God you could find. And what seems to me is that if the more deist you are, the less rich your vocabulary for deity becomes. There are only about five names for God. And the titles that Paul Bowler says are all deist terms are not deist terms. Instead, they're the kind of phrases that I find in writers like Jonathan Edwards, and other sermons of Orthodox preachers in Washington's day. They have that Baroque quality to them that says, we never use the name of Jesus intentionally or God unless we can embellish it with a title that shows that he's glorious. We don't just let the name drop. We want to bring it honor. And so I actually have tried to go through and collect some of the writings for uh, the name for God in Washington. And I found some. 90 different variations on these words. Uh, He uses such traditional names as God, Almighty, Supreme Being, Deity, Divinity, and Divine, or uh, various phrases like that. He uses scriptural names like Jehovah, God of armies, Lord of nations, Creator, and Maker. He uses on one occasion the Masonic name, which is the great architect of the universe. I know everybody says that's a great reason he couldn't be a Christian because he was a Mason. I want you to know, I'm not here as an apologist for the Masonic order, but the other day, because I'm now the president of Westminster Seminary, I was looking in a letter at one of the uh, great early funders, because one of the things a president do is tries to get money for his seminary. So off record, anybody wants to give to Westminster, talk to me, okay? I'm not allowed to say that officially here, okay? You can expunge that from the tape, right? But uh, the point is, one of the great funders of the seminary in the early years was a man named Dr. Stevenson. And there's a letter from J. Gresham Machen that goes to him and said, if it weren't for your gifts, we would have closed the doors a long time ago. Thank you. This man was giving to the most orthodox seminary on the face of the planet. And then I looked at the caption of the summary of his life. And you know what one of the things it says he was? I don't tell anybody this. He was a Mason. To be a Mason does not mean that you don't believe in the deity of Christ or in Christian orthodoxy. The founding of Westminster Seminary proves that itself. I'm not a Mason. I'll never become a Mason. I don't want to advocate for the Masons. But it is a non sequitur to say that one of the founding members of Proclamation Presbyterian Church, until the day he died, who was a wonderful evangelical Presbyterian, wore a Masonic ring and said, I believe in the gospel of Christ and I bring the gospel wherever I go. So don't assume that to be a Mason is meaning you can't be a Christian. Maybe it's inconsistent with Christian ethics. That's a topic for another day, okay? But my point is, is that only once or twice, maybe three times, we'll find that name for God. The traditional names, scriptural names, a Masonic name. And then he uses the Baroque names for deity, like the disposer, dispenser, governor, arbiter, giver, benign parent, wonder-working deity. Those are beautiful phrases that we don't use anymore. But you can find those kind of phrases in the great preachers of that era. Sometimes he will use uh, the names of divine attributes as qualities for God. Providence will mean God sometimes. Wisdom will mean God sometimes. Heaven will mean God. And power will mean God. These are such types. What kind of attributes does Washington attribute to God? He's omnipotent, all wise, kind, gracious, good, merciful, supreme, grand, great. He can be appealed to. He is the judge or arbiter. He brings vengeance. He's holy. He does miracles. He's wonderworking. He brings prophecy and he knows. I think he implies the Trinity in several ways when he speaks of the divine or divine author of our blessed religion. Now, speaking of Christ, I'll talk more about that in a minute. He affirms in a quote that comes from the Continental Congress in a day of prayer that we must seek the Holy Spirit, bringing the religion of true religion to the earth. He will attend a Trinity church. Did you know that Washington was so faithful to the prayer book that in one of his letters, he writes for a prayer book with certain dimensions that will fit perfectly into the pocket of his jacket? He did not want to travel without his prayer book. And his 1662 prayer book, which he used, was thoroughly Trinitarian and Orthodox in its nature. He believed that providence, when he described it, was a sovereign, inscrutable, uncontrollable providence that works God's good purpose. It is all kind, all wise. It brings the will of God, and we must submit to it without repining and complaining, for it fulfills God's destiny. And the specifics of it includes crops, rain, storms, victory, defeat, life and death, and natural advantages. He believes in creation of the universe. God's the creator, the maker. We are creatures. He is the first cause. He has works that he does, and he in, and he is the creator of both heaven and earth. He believes in spiritual realities. He talks about angels and men and departing for the world of spirits. He uses worship language like glory, praise, worship, that we not offend God, that we must honor, we must pray, we must seek virtue, not vice, we must acknowledge him. Did you know that there are over 60 prayers that Washington composed that I've counted in his letters? Some of them are as long as just a sentence and some are a paragraph in length. He uses sometimes other titles for deity that reflect the classical tradition. But when we think about his use of the Reformed theology, certainly his understanding of sin is magnificent. He uses words like depravity, sinners, wicked, iniquity, transgression, disobedience, vice, nefarious, evil, rascality, self-interest, malignant, the gore of war, greed, and the passions of man. He does not have the Enlightenment view so important to the deist of the perfectibility and perfection of man. Instead, he wants to see man perfected, but he has to deal with his fallenness. Okay, well, these are examples of some of his reformed theology in different ways, his titles, his deity. But one of my favorite phrases that I like to call the Rosetta Stone of Washington's view of providence The Jewish synagogue in Savannah, Georgia, congratulates him on becoming president of the United States. And as he writes to them, he sends back an interesting letter. Uh, The letter goes something like this. I hope that the dews of heaven might rest upon you who reflect the history of God's people. You know, he gives them biblical language reflecting their Old Testament heritage. And then he says, indeed, blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. Indeed, that same wonder working deity, Jehovah, who rescued the Israel people from the bonds of Egypt, is the one who has lately rescued America in our battle for independence. Now, wait a second. Did you hear what he just did? Quoting the Bible, he affirmed the story of the Exodus to a group of Orthodox Jews. He named God with the name that they would not name. He chose to use the ineffable name of God in writing to them, saying, as a Christian, I can speak his name. And I believe in the same providence of the history of redemption that rescued the people in Exodus as the one who's rescued America and giving us our own independence. An unbroken connection in the same God and the same God of redemptive history. That is a stunning reality. By the way, you won't see scholars quoting that letter. It exists. It's written in Washington's own hand, signed with his unmistakable signature. Well, I would say that's pretty reformed, wouldn't you say? That's redemptive history and providence. Okay. Now, as we look at these ideas of Washington, we need to come to a conclusion. I need to speed up. One of the arguments, of course, that's used that Washington could never have been a Christian is that he never took communion. What is rather startling that a man who is a vestryman, and also a parishioner all his life, as well as a warden of the church would never have taken communion. I think that's a contradiction in terms. But what we need to realize in an age where records are nearly non-existent, you know, you can't even prove who all the pastors were in the early Anglican churches in Virginia. The records, by and large, have been lost. They, They don't exist. So we can't do a paper record on many, many things. But Washington regularly in his uh, own journal shows that he went to church. And if you study it in the context of the fact that typically there was not a pastor in the church except once a month, and that you had to travel to an unheated church, nine to 10 miles, sometimes in rain and snow and ice, he was probably extremely faithful in attendance in his worship. And what we need to see then is that that means because we don't have written records, we have to rely on other evidence. And probably one of the most stunning records I've come across is the family history record legally preserved by the family of Alexander Hamilton. Wait a second, Alexander Hamilton. Remember him? He's pretty important. I think he still you still see his picture on some of the money that circulates in America. Okay, Alexander Hamilton's wife lived to be into her 90s. She was clear of mind to the day that she died. You Remember, she was the widow of Alexander Hamilton, who died as a result of the duel with Aaron Burr. <clears throat> she had begun to hear the claim in her lifetime that Washington was a deist. This is not a new argument. It's been around for a long time. It's The problem is, is that people don't like the fact that someone who really believed in the Trinity and in the Bible might have been the great founding father of America. And so secularists and deists have been wanting to destroy Washington's Christianity for uh, decades. And it had already happened in the 1800s. The debate is not a new one. And Mrs. Alexander Hamilton heard that. And so she gathered together some of her family members and said, I want you to know before I die a story that is absolutely true. She said, I was in New York City on the day in which George Washington was sworn in as president under the Constitution. And then she describes the circumstances, and each of the datas that are recorded by her family can be historically corroborated. They're authentic. They fit what we know about the day and the time. And she said, after he left the federal hall, he went on foot and we followed with him to the local Episcopal church. The big one had been burned, and so we were at the chapel. That's all true. And we worshiped. And at the end of the service, I had the privilege of kneeling in communion next to the newly inaugurated president of the United States of America. Now, that's remarkable because it is a family tradition by an eyewitness who is sound of mind preserved in a family. And then what makes it really interesting, it's doubly preserved through another tradition. It comes to us in two different directions with the same facts. So that's one of the fun things I'm going to share with. There is a record that Washington communed. In fact, we can argue that the historical records, such as they exist, show that the very first thing Washington chose to do, now that he was the president of the new country, was to worship and to commune. Now, that's almost worth a Presbyterian amen, even though it's about an Anglican worship service, okay? I think it's startling. And we might say, why was it that Washington didn't commune? Because there is a lot of evidence that he didn't. Well, there are three basic reasons. One, in the early Anglican tradition, they were not high Anglicans. They were country low Anglicans. And in the low Anglican tradition, they said, if you are going to really be faithful to Christ, you should commune at least three times a year. Did you hear that? We're used to the post-Newman Oxford movement the high angle catholic tradition and we know that many believe in weekly and frequent communion in his day that was not the practice three times a year was normative for a typical godly leader secondly in this context when the war started washington was never in a place very long where he could become part of a local church worship and he had a problem when he found an anglican church Do you know what he would typically find when he went to worship in the Anglican church? He would find a rector who was still wrestling whether he was supposed to be loyal to the king or part of the American Revolution. The Book of Common Prayer required a loyalty oath when you went to the communion table to the king. And not every Anglican clergyman was willing to do that. Some were, some weren't, and Washington realized that he was out of communion with the head of the Anglican church. And that is why the oral history, again, oral history, that's all we have of this era, records the fact that once up in northern New Jersey, he asked for the permission to commune in a Presbyterian church, because there weren't a lot of Anglicans that would have let him commune. And he asked to commune in a church where many Presbyterians were loyal to the American cause. They thought it was just. And so that is an oral tradition that also reflects it. Okay, by the way, I'm not going to prove my case. There are many people who are Christians that are lousy communicants. That is, isn't a deist is not made by being a bad communicant. It means you're not as good of a Christian as you ought to be. I don't have to make Washington to be a perfect Christian to make him a Christian. All I have to do is demonstrate that he is not a deist, and I'm continuing to show you that there's no shred of evidence that he was. As you continue on, one of the things that I think is striking to show the depth of which Washington was involved in the life of the church, I've gone through to collect some of his Anglican vocabulary. I've never seen this done. I don't know that I've done it exhaustively or perfectly, but notice the Anglican terminology that he uses of government. He uses the word episcopate, bishop, ecclesiastical, vestry, holy orders, cure, commissary, benefice, glebe, and parish. You gotta be an Anglican to know what those words mean. In terms of ministry, he uses the word parson, reverend, curate, pastor, chaplain, missionary, vestryman, deacon, clergyman, and priest. In terms of parishioner worship, he uses words like Sunday, Sabbath, first day, seventh day, sermon, benediction, blessing, curse, obsequies, and pew. In terms of the Anglican calendar, he uses the words Ladies' Day, Michael Mass, Dominical Number, Easter, Easter Monday, and Christmas. In terms of Anglican history, he calls Oliver Cromwell the usurper. And he talks about the gunpowder celebration. Maybe you, I can't tell you about it. That's a fun story. It's where the Pope was dragged in effigy through the streets. We don't want to talk about that today. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer, Divine Services and Prayers. He uses sacramental terms such as sponsor, christen, the little Christian, and the cup of blessing. He uses theological words like true religion, error, superstition, expiate, conversion, repentance, forgiveness, and holy. His military terminology is suffused with religious terminology. He uses the word pardon, redemption, atonement, grace, mercy, Forgiveness, salvation, justification, and that's in the context of what he did speak about, which is the military experience, and he used Christian vocabulary to describe it. He uses religious figures. He mentions St. Patrick, the cross, the Knights of Divine Providence. He mentions other religious traditions, such as Jew, Muslim, Atheist, Father Confessor, Purgatory, and Penance. But you know what word he never once uses? Deist. He never even uses the word once. He does use the word infidel and says you're worse than an infidel if you do not believe in providence. Well, our time is waning and I only have a few moments left and I have a great deal of ground to cover. So let me kind of go into high gear. As we look at uh, this vast sweep of Calvinistic theology, Anglican terminology, uh, biblical terms, church involvement, sermon engagement, involvement in Christian things. It's important to realize that Washington, when he speaks about his prayer life, which I said there are 60 of them, shows that it's a kind of prayer that could only be possibly be done if it was faithful or it was utterly hypocritical. He talks about my fervent prayers. He talks about my vows to God. He talks about uh, his praying for God's blessings upon people and safety. Washington, when he goes on from his prayer life to talk about religion, interesting, uh, Paul Bowler, who does this great book on George Washington religion, never even does a survey of Washington's use of the word religion. On the surface of it, that makes that word, that book unacceptable. He said that's what he's going to talk about. And he never even gives us the use of the word religion in its exhaustive sense in Washington. You'd think at least he would have pursued the word. And he doesn't even do that. I have pursued the word religion. And one of the things I've discovered is that he actually makes a clear statement about something being true, what he calls the first commandment, the first commandment of creation, that is to be fruitful and multiply. Interesting. He's going back to the Genesis account. That's how he looked at the Western frontier. That's why he wanted to open it up with rivers, so that the persecuted people of the world could come to America and enter into this vast wilderness and have a place to live. He said it's consistent with the first commandment of religion, whether construed as revealed or natural religion. Now, why that's important is that the distinction between revealed and natural religion is critical. Revealed religion is only what a Christian holds to. Natural religion is only what a deist holds to. And he says it doesn't matter whether you're a deist or a Christian. This holds true. He has that kind of language that recognizes the truth of religion. And so when he uses religion, you know what he says? Speaking of Christianity, he calls it our blessed religion. He speaks of the true religion. He talks about our blessed religion revealed in the word of God. So we can debate then whether Washington ever prayed at Valley Forge. There was no videotape taken. There were no photographs. After all, secret prayer is not seen by other people. But we can see the kind of language he uses to describe his prayer and his view of religion, that it would have been something that he quite likely could have done. But we need to conclude as you already hear, I conclude about four times. That's the second conclusion. I'm trying to be consistent with my introduction. The testimony of his friends. One of the most important statements I can possibly think of is what comes from the diary of General Muhlenberg. You know, his father, Melchior Muhlenberg, is the father of Lutheranism in America. His son, uh, General Muhlenberg, actually went to study Lutheranism. He left the pietistic school and because he didn't feel like he really fit there, he came back to America. He ended up becoming a Lutheran minister in Virginia, not far from Washington. And he became to be a great uh, outdoorsman. He actually used to hunt with Washington. And he's the man that was preaching uh, when the call came out uh, for soldiers to come and help in the revolution. He had on his robe and he was preaching on Ecclesiastes 3 and he's it's a time for war and a time for peace. And at the end of his sermon, he opened up his robe, and he had on a general's outfit in the Revolutionary Army. And he said, my brothers, it is time for us to stand for the liberties of America. And they beat the drum, and 300 men, I guess, left the church and went out and signed up right from his church service. Okay, This man loved American freedom. He was an Orthodox Lutheran. He was a minister. He was a Virginian. His brother, interestingly, was an uh, or Orthodox Lutheran up in New York City who was very upset with his brother for standing for the American cause until the British came and closed down the Lutheran church and drove him from his pulpit. And he wrote back and said, I apologize. You were right, and I was wrong. It is that second Muhlenberg, the other Reverend Muhlenberg, whose name is on the uh, Bill of Rights when it was signed because he ended up going to Congress later. Now, this General Muhlenberg writes in his testimony, I have been with General Washington, and it is a cre- incredible joy to be with a man who believes in the atoning sacrifice of Christ and leads his men in worship. Okay, paraphrase, but that's what he says. A man who is a, a minister, an inner circle general, who is with him in the battles, who came from his own place of Virginia, and that's the testimony. I'd like to find anybody who had that kind of a close connection. Anybody who's ever accused Washington of being a deist was never close to him. They were not his intimates. The men who were intimate with him understood who he was. George Washington was a churchman. As we've already said, he purchased the pew at the highest price. He personally plotted, laid out the church that he worshipped. He made sure that the pew that he bought was closest to the communion table and also able to view the pulpit. Uh, It was a place where he and his wife regularly worshipped. His minister in Alexandria at the end of his life was a man by the name of Reverend Brian Fairfax. I want to say just a quick word about him. He was a royal figure from England. A Fairfax family owned most of the northern neck of Virginia, which is a big part of Virginia. They were the wealthiest family. He went to become an Anglican minister after the Revolution. I've come across one of his old sermons. They're very hard to come by. The Virginia Historical Society had one. You read it, and you know what it is? It's on the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And it is thoroughly orthodox. It shows the kind of sermons that Brian Fairfax would have preached when Washington would have been worshiping in his church. It was his closest friend throughout his life. He was a minister and was thoroughly orthodox. When Washington died... His wife was there. The record says the Bible was open. She sat at his side, known as the most Christian woman in all of Virginia from her early years. His last words were, tis well. And when he said them, she said, tis well. And the family buried him. They took the words from the prayer book from John 11 and you can see them there to this very day. I am the resurrection and the life. Now, we have to put all this together somehow and say, what do we make of a man who is like this? Well, we need to make a lot, then, I think, of his statements when he says in one of his letters, On my honor and the faith of a Christian, this letter is true. When he says to his troops, be Christian soldiers. When he says to the men at Valley Forge, to your work of being a patriot, which is a great honor, add to it the highest honor of being a Christian. When he says those things, I think we need to take them to be the truth of who he is. Washington was a man who believed in the Christian faith and practice of the Anglican church. He was one who bought theological books with his own money. And this is where I conclude, the only theological book that we can find that he ever purchased was from the Bishop of Serum. It was an exposition of the 39 articles of the Anglican Church. And the Bishop of Serum, Bishop Gilbert Bernay, was known as one of the leaders of what was called the Latitudinarian Anglican Movement. This movement trained the two pastors in the Anglican tradition that Washington had, Parson Green and Parson Massey. What did the Latitudinarian system hold? A deeply... Orthodox Trinitarian faith that emphasized the faithful obedience of the Christian in life, coupled with a very broad religious liberty perspective. Well, if you look at Washington's life, that's exactly what you find. There's nothing that is not Orthodox in his Christian vocabulary. He is always emphasizing deeds, not words. And his whole purpose for going to the field to lead the army, he said, was to establish our civil and religious liberties. A latitudinarian at this time in history was just what an Anglican was. They did not have the Great Awakening evangelical spirit, but they loved their confession and their creed and their worship. And he fits that image to a T. So then, as we look at Washington from this point on, I would like to propose that we not follow the centrifugal forces of the debate that's been going on for the years. He's a deist. No, he's a wonderful evangelical. He was neither. He was a historic latitudinarian Anglican who was orthodox in his faith. And that means that we have a wonderful tradition when we look at the founding of our nation. It is a nation that is Trinitarian, be founded by our first leader. And I conclude with this quote, and this is my conclusion. Only three times, not four today. When he retired as the commanding general of a victorious American army, having refused to become king, saying, I came here for the people, not for myself. He wrote a personal letter to every one of the governors of all 13 now independent sovereign states. He signed it with his own hand and he wrote a prayer in that letter. He said, we will never be a happy nation unless we are willing to do justice and to love mercy. Wait a second. He's, saying, he's quoting, quoting Micah chapter six and verse eight, right? But he doesn't quote Micah chapter six and verse eight. Instead, like a good reformed biblical historical theologian, he makes it Christological. We cannot hope to be a happy nation unless we do justice, love mercy, and we imitate the divine author of our blessed religion without whose charity and pacific temper of mind we can never be who we want to be. Do you see what he does? Instead of saying walk humbly with your God, his God is Jesus Christ, who we must imitate. And this now is not a quiet, personal devotion to his family. He's writing as broadly and publicly as he possibly can, and he writes it personally and says, we as Americans must do justice, love mercy, and imitate Jesus Christ in his peace and love, if we would be the nation that I fought for us to be. I tell you, if that's what a deist is, then I want to be a deist, okay? That's no deist. That is a man who understands that the kingship of Jesus is part of the American experience. It is something that should not be written into our documents because that creates hypocrites, but it should be there in our hearts and lives as we lead becoming the salt and light of the earth. He is a great exemplar for the Christian statesman still. And let's let no one take him from us because the record shows that he's ours. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the full conference series, American War for Independence, now available on Canon Plus.